Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Zoe Leonard, born in Liberty, New York in 1961, is acclaimed for her work in sculpture and photography made over the past three decades. While the subject matter in her photography ranges widely, it is informed by an incisive critical scrutiny of the conventions, protocols, and politics of image-making and display. In 1993, the filmmaker Cheryl Dunier approached Leonard about producing a trove of images recording the life and career of a fictional black lesbian actress working in Hollywood in the early 20th century. Leonard constructed a resonant, multi-layered album of the personal and professional life of the actress, Faye Richards, which includes film stills from roles she might have played and snapshots recording casual moments with friends and lovers. Period-specific costumes and props, as well as a variety of photographic processes and faux aging treatments, contribute to the realism of the project without obscuring its invented origins. From this corpus of 82 images, some of which appeared briefly as props in Dunye's film, The Watermelon Woman, Leonard created the Faye Richards Photo Archive, which she first exhibited at the 1997 Whitney Biennial, and which is on view in the exhibition Outliers and American Vanguard Art at the National Gallery of Art through May 13, 2018. On January 28, 2018, in celebration of the exhibition opening and as part of the Diamondstein's Spiel Vogel Lecture Series, Zoe Leonard discusses her career with senior curator Lynn Cook. So, in 1997, in the Whitney Biennial, you exhibited the Faye Richards Photo Archive, a work comprising, as we see, some 82 photographic prints together with notes and captions. And I thought we might begin talking about it, partly because it's here and so people can see it, and partly because of the way it offers an entry into your practice to thinking about issues and ways of working that have run through your work over the past several decades. So, how did it come about? Um, uh, well, first, I just really want to say hello. <laughs> um, and thank you, Lynn, for... Um, uh, I'm so incredibly honored to be part of the show and to be here today. Um, so, thank you. Um, I feel like there's going to be crying. Um, <laughs> hopefully not, but happy tears. Um, but uh, it's uh, just incredible to see one's, to have one's work put in a context that's so um, uh, wide-ranging and, uh, and, and profoundly questioning of, um, of, of who we are and how we build societies and, and what it means to be an American and what history is and who determines it. And it's just... Um, yeah, it's it's. Um, I keep hearing people say, "Oh, it's amazing! It's extraordinary!" and um, I, the show. And um, I feel like I haven't found the word yet that encompasses um, just how how big it is. Um, so it's been it's been great to come and walk through the show. Um, this piece um, to bring it back to my work for a moment. Um, this piece uh, I made um, as as part of a I was requested to make it. Um, the filmmaker Cheryl Denier, who's uh, was a young filmmaker at the time, um, had an idea for a film she wanted to make, in which the protagonist um, 
discover gets interested in a character actor um, in a few Hollywood films and someone who's only credited uh, with the Nomer Watermelon Woman and she becomes interested in this character and she researches her and um, that was so it was going to be kind of like a faux documentary um, but this person didn't exist so Cheryl came to me and said you know could you put together a body of photographs that would make this character believable like make her seem historically as, as if she had lived um, and first we were like, oh, can we scrabble together things from flea markets? But of course that wouldn't work. Um, so we, um, I kind of sat down with Cheryl and um, put together a timeline of Faye Richard's life and then thought about the instances at which she could have been photographed. And then we figured out how with absolutely no money and just a lot of friends um, and all their borrowed clothes and furniture and, um, and expertise. Um, over the course of about a year, we sort of um, developed the storyline that would be these photographs and then shot them. I shot them and worked with a few assistants and the, actually the cast and crew list are part of the artwork. So within the artwork, it's evident that it's a fiction and that it was made by, a num that it was made collaboratively. So everyone who was part of it is sort of also part of the artwork. Um, and after the shooting, um, I was gonna head in the dark room and I was like, this is a lot of work. Um, and I know that I have, as every photographer does, um, my own printing style. And I didn't want it to look like it was all shot by one person. So um, I, asked a number of friends. I think we had a group of seven or eight people, including Al Steiner, um, Jack Louth, um, other people that um, people in the room know, uh, and asked each person to sort of embody the character of one of the photographers. And so one person printed like all the glamour shots as if they were that photographer and someone else was like the news photographer and someone else was um, like the snapshot photographer. So we sort of distributed them, printed them all separately in additions, and then had these kind of parties where we handled them and um, left them out in the rain and spilled tea and coffee on them and wrinkled them and walked on them until they, so that they would resemble photographs that had actually been out in the world. Um, so yeah, in a nutshell, that's it. Can you still hear me? Yeah. All right, I'm just gonna keep checking back. <laughs> so there are many different types of photographers. You said film stills, publicity pictures, family snapshots, casual images, shot with and printed so they look differently. Yeah. You obviously have a very deep knowledge of photographic histories and traditions, technical processes and mediums but you don't have a formal academic training. And I understand you left school early on, high school, uh, but you started making art quickly. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's necessary for an artist working in photography to have this knowledge, to acquire tech these kinds of in-depth technical skills and to know the history of the medium? Mm -hmm. um, not do they need to go to art school. You found other yeah, ways. Yeah. You go to museums yeah. often, you had, older uh, friends who were photographers, I understand, yeah. and so 
That's such a great question. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that before. Um, it's a tough one because I think um, rendering an image um, on your phone or even on an analog camera is really easy. Um, but making a good picture is something else entirely. And, and figuring out what you want your pictures to mean means that you have to figure out what you want them to look like. Like that's how you communicate meaning. It's not just the image material. It's is it dark or light? Is it um, color or black and white? Is it soft or sharp? Is it does it have a lot of depth of field? Is it big? Is it small? Is it digital? Is it analog? Um, so I think as in any other art form, um, you have to learn your medium. Um, and whether that's through formal training or through accident um, or through trial and error, um, I think in order to develop your voice as an artist, uh, that's what artists do. That's actually what art is. Um, I read this really great, um, there was a section in this um, Linda Nochlin, this very well-known Linda Nochlin essay, Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists? It's a whole other conversation. Um, but, um, but not unrelated to this one. Um, uh, but there's a section where she talks about a, a public misunderstanding of what art is. And I'm paraphrasing wildly and loosely right now, but that art is not um, a, a, an experience or a feeling or um, an idea. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a practice that where something is actually materially realized um, in a certain, with a certain language that is developed and honed and made specific to what it is you want to say. Um, and so photography, yeah, can anyone take a picture? Absolutely. Um, but if it's a practice, you've got to get to know, you've got to get to know the range of it. Um, and that's not about it being um, a traditionally high quality, fine art print. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean it's a better photograph. It can be the rattiest, just shittiest, most blurriest, blown out, nastiest thing. If that's what you want to talk about, that's what the picture should look like. So, yeah. And really from the beginning, when we look back to early work, it's often double dated. And it's dated with the, the year you took the image. And it could be four years later and it has a second date. Mm -hmm. And that's because it, over four years, you thought about which paper, what size, mm -hmm. how dark the print, and so forth, mm -hmm. um, and maybe context. That's pretty unusual, Zoe. <laughs> um, yeah, so I hear, yeah. Um, yeah, it can be, sometimes it can be a matter of months, sometimes it can be as long as 10 or 12 or 15 years. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of that is figuring out the print. Um, I think one could say, I've said this before, but that maybe your negative is your score mm -hmm. and the print is the performance. Mm -hmm. um, so you have the bones of what it is that you want to make or mm -hmm. say, but then the performance is something you really have to think about. Um, sometimes it's also that, um, I, I, I don't, um, sometimes you just take, 
you just don't know what to do with something. And you're like, I like these, these are interesting, but I really don't know what I'm trying to say with them. And they go back in the drawer and they keep coming back out and you're like, ah, um, and some of them you just eventually are like, that's actually just terrible. Um, and others keep coming back and asking you to resolve them. Um, and at some very surprising later moment, you're like, oh yeah, remember that and scrounge around in the drawer till you find those negatives. Um, so perhaps there's a real, um, uh, affinity with writing, mm -hmm. where the generating material and then the kind of editing process and the honing process, there's a real relationship there um, to that kind of, uh, mm -hmm. the stages of work. And you look at a lot of photography very widely. Yeah, as much as I can. And yeah. so some of what you're looking at is amateur photography, one could say, some of it's um, made like topographical shots from airplanes, scientific photography mm -hmm. connected to astronomy. I mean, these are, it's not just different techniques. They're mm -hmm. made for different purposes and they um, usually have, the aesthetics are not foremost in the photographer's mind. Mm -hmm. Do you see those as somehow in a different category? Is it that photography mm -hmm. is so, so broadly based in the culture and it serves so many different ends? What happens when work like that enters the art museum? Okay, okay wow, that was a lot of different questions. Um, uh, okay, so I think um, this sort of dovetails with something really, um, I think, important um, about the role that photography plays in this show. Mm -hmm. And the fact that photography... Um, has has always been a kind of outlier mm -hmm. within the museum and within fine art. Um, photography came from like a bunch of, I mean, there's a naturally occurring phenomenon of the camera obscura that this thing happens with light when there's a small aperture. Um, but then a bunch of like kooky guys in the, you know, uh, 19th century who were like burning mercury in their basement and and like dragging glass plates down canyons um, and you know blah, fixing the image um, so it's um, it, it wasn't really um, it it never had and I don't think it ever will have the status of painting the kind of serious um, cultural high art value of painting and um, and that's what I love about it, actually. I don't mean to diss photography. I think it's a fundamentally different kind of practice. Photographs are used, it, they're vernacular, they're utilitarian, um, they're popular, they're, now we've all got it in our pockets. Um, it's, it's a whole other kind of language that isn't, it hasn't ever been really sanctified um, within the museum, although I think it's, there's a certain amount of respect for it. I think it's, it's always been a little bit of a shaky ground of like, where does it, where does it actually belong um, in the museum? Um, and there've been, you know, there was sort of an early uh, turn of last century movement, the pictorialist movement that where the highest compliment was like, oh, that's so painterly. Um, where the photographs were trying to sort of mimic a kind of painting. Um, and um, 
it, whatever, if you want to go that route, why not just paint? Um, although there's some great, great work done in that field, um, and I've never been interested in that. I've always kind of been fascinated by the practitioners that wanted to really um, have a ca the camera in the world doing what the camera does. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and there's the whole kind of uh, middle of last century, well, there's all the experimental European, and then the middle of last century where street photography came into its own and came into the museum. Freelander, uh, Frank, uh, Lisette Modell, Arbus. Um, but, uh, but there's still always this argument of like, is this really art? And I think what's so great about our moment and um, some of the proposals in this show is that that's a, it's just, we can kind of skip over that whole argument mm -hmm. and kind of look at it for what it is and what it does and love it on those terms and not try to make it into something that it isn't. Does that make any sense? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And do you think that's reflected in the fact that many contemporary artists who use photography either exclusively, like Cindy Sherman, or a great deal, as you do, but not exclusively, uh, tend to self-identify as artists who use photography, and there are not, Thomas Struth, I would think, in many ways there are not, the ones who call themselves photography photographers often tend to come out of that very refined modernist practice strand and, and moving forward, and that those, that the point of the broader term artist is that the medium is in service to a vision of whatever that might be. Do you think this, that's just uh, like all the problems I've, what I call term warfare that dominates this field. People deciding this is folk, no, this is outsider, this is isolate, where it, in the end they're historically determined and they shift constantly. But um, it's the frame that makes the meaning, the context in which the word occurs and when it's coined or when it has uh, currency. Yeah, I think that's a really, yeah. Um, that's super interesting. Um, and in the, the parsing out of terms in your essay for this show is so clarifying. And I think the only way to present this work, there had to be a, a new term, because each and every one of those other terms, whether they were laudatory or whether they were dismissive, had baggage. And so this allows it a new frame um, that suits the proposal of the show, um, or the proposition. Um, in photography, you know, I sort of, I, I'm not against being called a photographer. Um, there was definitely a time in the 90s, early 90s, which is kind of when I really started showing seriously, um, so an artist who uses photography. And um, I think that was a way to, um, I, I began showing in art galleries that were not photography galleries. They're like dedicated photography galleries. And there's this sort of photo, photo world 
I know there are people here who know about that. Andrea Geyer, front and center here. Um, and then there's this sort of the art, this sort of um, large field of contemporary art and the galleries and the museums that are interested in that. Um, so it communicated that your work could be shown in a different kind of context, and it allowed one's work to be um, considered on peer with other people that weren't working in photography. And I was always more comfortable um, in that kind of, um, you know, wider ranging and more promiscuous kind of um, pairing. Um, and, and one thing I wanted to say about that when you were saying, oh, I look at a lot of photography and lots of different kinds of photography, I also look at everything else. And I think this is another one of the amazing things about the number of different mediums that are in this show, but very much the way that artists live their lives. Often art historians or academics or the sort of the process of art history um, draws clean lineages for artists, like, oh, painters come from this painter and this painter and this painter, and then you're the heir to this, blah, blah, blah. And the fact is that artists' lives, for the most part, have a whole other kind of horizontal or oblique set of relationships and influences that are about, you know, going to poetry readings and watching television, and the range of influences way outside your medium. Um, but now I've lost the question I was answering before. Um, yeah, I have to. Okay, <laughs> whatever. Well, oh, it was about categories. terminology and category. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but I think yeah, yeah I'll take either. Mm -hmm. You know, I I say I'm an artist usually because I work in a number of different medium. But when I work in photography, it's not something that I consider ancillary. When I'm like a full-on photographer, and I think it's my home, uh, my artistic home. The sculptures that I make, the installations that I make, the other work that I do, um, I think is deeply committed to um, an, the ideas of photographic seeing mm -hmm. and the terms of um, observation and recording and understanding and temporality and all the things that I l learn and think about through photography those same those same um, uh, principles um, or yeah those same principles are sort of they travel around with me to these other mm -hmm. these other um, medium mm -hmm. and does that include writing there are there's a text of yours that's out there that's very getting a lot of attention now. I want a president. But I'd also look at an essay you wrote a couple of years back for James Castle Show. Really wonderful catalog essay. So they're, they're two very different forms of expression. But they, the amount of time and effort and crafting that goes into them seems to me it's comparable to making a work, whether or not you call it a work. Uh, is that part of your just the kind of highly responsible, committed way you approach what you do, um, you know, like I, in the broader sense. I think it's, um, I mean, I would love to consider myself responsible and committed. Um, <laughs> and I'll take that too, as long, along with artist and photographer. Um, but I, it started much more organically than that. As like a teenager, 
I was like one of those kids that knew I was an artist, but I wasn't sure if I was an artist or a writer. And um, I always had the notebook and it was like in the coffee shop all night long writing in the notebook, um, you know, like moody and just writing in the notebook. Um, and then there was the camera. So it was, they're really, they're very different, but they're really good companions. The camera and the notebook are these two kind of small things you can carry with you and, um, it, you know, record what's happening, record the world, but also sort of intercede or have a, have a way to understand, like, the looking and feeling at the world is is such a big thing. We're all doing it all the time, and it's kind of overwhelming. And so processing that material, thinking about it, um, for me it was always uh, writing about it, taking pictures of it were ways to look more closely or to, to give myself the space and time to think about what I'm seeing, what am I experiencing, taking a little note. It's about remembering it, but I think it's more than just about writing something down to remember it. It's actually in that moment you're helping yourself process. Um, you know, people do that in museums too. You're in show, and you're like, oh, you know, are you ever going to look at that scrap of paper again? Probably not. But in that moment, it's sort of giving you the space to what something was special about that, and I wanted to take note of it. So um, they, the writing and the photography, sort of came up together. Mm -hmm. And there was definitely a moment when I was, you know, in my um, precocious teens where I thought maybe I was a writer. Um, and I'm definitely not. <laughs> I mean, I'm friends with really good, I read a lot. And, um, and um, uh, like Eileen Miles, who's the person who ran for president the year that I wrote I Want to Dyke for President, she is a poet. And she, she thinks it's hilarious that I'm being referred to as a poet and that that's referred to as a poem. And it's great. I'll take that, too. I'm like, yeah, I'm a poet. But, you know, but I'm not, I'm not like a poet, like a serious poet. They know, poet, you know, they know poetry in a way that I don't. I read it. I love it. Um, and I wouldn't call myself a writer. But writing is an important part of thinking and making for me. And it's something I do in the studio a lot. I also draw in the studio a lot. It's a way, it's a way, it's a way to start diagramming and thinking and parsing ideas out and to do something active when you don't know what to do in the studio. And I know every artist here, right? You're in the studio, you're like, oh my God, what am I doing here today? You're like, I've got to stay here for at least a few hours to make it look like I'm real. But you're like, oh. You know, and so you, you do something, you, you know, so you sketch out the ideas, write out the, just start gathering material, count postcards, um, you could try it. Um, <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, it has all these different functions and every once in a while there's a, a, a request or a charge to, to make a finished essay and Castle, um, is just one of those artists that the second I first saw his work, I was like, who is this person and what are they doing and what are they making? And it was, uh, it was so it was really exciting to be asked to write for that catalog. Um, but, um, but it's long and to all the writers, oh my God, it's hard. People really work. It's, writing is so hard. Um, yeah. Uh, maybe we can look at an image, and I want to look particularly at um, postcards, I, what I'm <laughs> after. Uh, 
Here we go. Oh, yeah. Oh, these guns, yeah. Yes. Um, you've used postcards in a number of works, but I've, I'm particularly interested in this because this is a postcard rack at Mass Mocha, and here are some of the cards. And we talked at one point about including this in, mm -hmm. in this show. Yeah. And, um, you know, in the way that things evolve, it didn't happen. But can you say something about, about it, its genesis, and maybe how you think it might have fitted? Okay, yeah. Um, this, I made this piece, there are very few times when I've made a work specifically for a show. This is one of those times. Um, I was invited to participate in a show called Yankee Remix. Anne Hamilton was also in that show and made an incredibly beautiful piece. Um, it was at Mass Mocha. And they, Mass Mocha was doing a collaboration with a local historical society, the Society for the Preservation of New England Artifacts. It was like SPNEA is what I remember. Um, anyway, we were, uh, uh, perhaps a dozen artists were invited to go through the really substantial holdings of this historic society. They owned a number of historical houses, um, including one modernist one, and the rest were sort of more colonial houses. Lorna Simpson was also in the show and made a knockout video, two-channel video piece um, in using two of the histor historical houses. Um, uh, so we were all invited to um, respond to or use or somehow work with the holdings of this um, historical society. And they had this there were the houses and the furniture in them, and you could work with that. And then they had this crazy, gigantic, freezing cold warehouse in, I think, Reading, Massachusetts, is that um, where you could paw through like an enormous amount of inventoried Americana and make something. Um, so I went through a bunch of different ideas, as one does, and then um, decided that I wanted to make this. It, it sort of started, I think, where I was sort of photographing objects I was interested in or attracted to, but it began to hone down more to things that, um, how do I say this? That the rack, I think there were 36 different postcards, and on the piece was called For Which It Stands. And I thought about how, in their totality, they could be some kind of composite n set of notions about what it is to be American. Um, I think the year was, I think it was the year we were going to the Iraq War, um, somewhere around in there, whatever. Um, and so there were objects that were either like interesting or funny or tragic, but that seemed somehow loaded in a specific way. Some of them were just, um, you know, kind of like the shoals, sandals. They were like things I remembered from being uh, a teenager. But there were a few items in that I found in the collection that began to drive the work um, and that changed the work. One was this painting. Um, oh, well, this thing too, this, the embroidery on the right um, was a um, embroidered fire screen. It's something you sort of put in front of the fire so it wasn't too hot. Um, and it, ha you know, it says, we's free, and there are two 
African-American or dark-skinned people dancing. And I was like, whoa, okay, this is changing the project. And then this painting um, of a child with a, um, an alphabet, um, those books where you learn the alphabet, and you can see in the close-up it says C is for cat and D is for darky. And I thought, okay, again, the project's taking a little bit of a different spin. Um, and then I asked about flags, and they had this amazing flag, um, and there was a lot of kind of cowboys and Indians. So I sort of, um, I photographed different things. I, I, I've always loved, I really love postcards, <laughs> um, a lot. Um, and I've always loved that really old-fashioned kind of museum postcard that's just like a color background and then like the object, like this is the Ming vase or this is the whatever. And some of those from the 50s and 60s, it's like, oh my God, the pinks and the greens and they're just, or sometimes there's like a shelf, but they like put fabric over it like so you can't see the shelf even though you can see the shelf you know but it's like that great like this is my object and it's very different than advertising it's not like food styling it's like it's this very particular kind of presentation of an object that's supposed to be classy it's like this is museum worthy so i was like yeah i want that um and i don't really know anything about lighting i've never i always use available light so um, the uh, Mass Mocha had a kind of north, uh, in their workspaces upstairs, a kind of north, north window gallery. So we just set up a table and Jocelyn Davis, who, I don't know, did Jocelyn make it down here? Ah, oh, Jocelyn, who is like beloved, um, has worked with me for 20, some 20 years now. Um, she uh, w was like the steaming, cause she's like, she knows how to sew. And so it's like steaming the fabric. And so we had this whole crazy setup with like our, and then it was a museum. So it was like the puffy um, slippers and the, the gloves and like our trolley of object objects, the objects we're pulling from the collection. And we had, we had a blast and we're like, ooh, okay, bring me that Burger King crown now, please. <laughs> Like, oh yeah, oh, put your gloves on. Um, so the way photography, again, can be moved from being, this is an artwork, but the use of photography is as documentation, and it's taking on a really specific style of photography that communicates something about the relative value of different kinds of objects. And by putting all these different kinds of objects on uh, a horizontal plane in terms of their treatment, the piece asks the question about their relative value and what they mean cumulatively in the museum and what they mean dispersed in the world as individual items. The, there was also a thing where you could buy the postcards. There was like an honor box there and you could just put in, I think it was 50 cents a card or something. And there was some math about like, once the things were sold, we could print them again. Of course that never happened. But um, uh, um, I was thinking about how then these images separated from their um, 
um, the other constituent parts and separated from the museum, what would this image mean when it like ended up on someone's refrigerator somewhere else? The way the postcards traveled through the world or how they did then, I mean, they, it's not as much so now, but um, uh, I don't know, ideas of kind of commerce and democracy, um, ideas of um, class and distribution, um, yeah, which I think are very much at play here. Um, all the different kinds of objects and what does it mean to wrestle them free from their category um, and put them next to each other and reevaluate them um, for what they are and how they were made and, and what they look like. And their meaning shifts when you give them space. It's interesting because the the photograph with the neutral monochrome background and the object purports to be a documentation of the object, but given the way photographs like that, or postcards like that are not current, that's the signifying system of the whole visual language that you've just described is what dominates. And what I find interesting, and it, it, how it uh, opens up, a, a discussion we were having yesterday, which goes back to an earlier discussion, and that's um, in the first gallery of the exhibition, there are two Charles Sheeler photographs of uh, a house in Doylston that he rented and photographed in 1917. So they're very early in Sheeler's career and they're amongst the earlier works in the show. And they're the only photographs for the first eight galleries or so. I mean, there's, there's no photography until we get to Faye Richards. And you, we talked about the Schiller a lot um, and whether these two photographs would be anomalous and why start a conversation about photography when it's not going to be played through or seemingly not being played through for a while. Um, but in that room, there's also the index of American design, which is some um, 18,000 watercolor renderings which were made as part of a New Deal project beginning in 1937. And as a New Deal project, it was partly generated to provide jobs for commercial artists and illustrators and other artists uh, who were out of work as a consequence of the Depression. But it had multiple purposes. And one of the others was to make a kind of archive of representative but fine examples of decorative objects and applied arts objects and, and religious artifacts and so forth uh, nationwide. As it happened, the index didn't set up offices in the South and so there are very few objects from the South, but they, they're then pretty widespread and the watercolor renderings are made to very strict conventions in terms of representation, the size of the page, the angle at which a piece of furniture is, is um, represented and so on. So the people working on the project were vetted and then they were given strict instructions and in fact sometimes if the work was thought not to measure up it was rejected. But the choice of watercolor for this vast project uh, over photography, and you think this is 1937, it was, watercolor was chosen because um, the organizer, organizers of the index um, asked the advice of archeologists and Egyptologists about 
watercolor versus photography, and they were advised that watercolor would be a better medium to use because it provided more information. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so we have the Schiller photographs, which mm. one might think, though probably not, that they document the building because they don't. They're clearly something else, the yes. poetic truth and the formal resolution. Uh, take them into another kind of arena, and that's obvious immediately. But weaving it back in relation to these postcards and your interest in mm. um, postcards more broadly, as you've mm. used them in other projects, the idea of truth and representation mm. and how the vernacular mm. plays into that. Mm. This, I know it's a huge question, but you want um, to say something I about know. some of it. How much time do we have? Um, I mean, it, it sounds so absurd to say that the watercolors would give you more information, but in a funny way, I can see that that's true. Like sometimes, if you're um, if you're going to build something, it's, it's like drawing a diagram. Like there's something diagrammatic about the emphasis that you can give um, the details that can sort of inform texture or um, you're not bound by the specific lighting conditions um, that a, the, a, a photograph, right? Um, as to the larger question, I mean, I think Sheeler is such an interesting figure in this show, um, partly because, you know, he is recognized as um, a, a mainstream fine American artist, but he had a hybrid practice um, and was working in photography um, as much as in painting. And I think you could argue that the photographs are every bit as important as the paintings. Um, and then in the paintings, there's this, um, you know, this abundance of, of folk art objects and shaker objects and textiles. And so there's also a kind of inventorying that's happening in these paintings too. And um, we were having a sort of broad conversation with a group of friends and sort of these ideas of like um, a clean or perfect modernism um, or the myth of the kind of clean and perfect modernism versus one that is more complex and still has to do with the uses of the hand. And that's not all about machine production and um, industry. Um, but that the, uh, you know, Sheeler would stand alongside Strand and a number of other um, modernist photographers as kind of paramounts in but um but there's this this um uh all this other kind of material because of the way that he's switching back and forth and because of the way that he so clearly um shows you and tells you about his love of these historic objects and these folk objects and the baskets and the the quilts and the um the, you know the the rugs and uh, and he has definite um, uh, uh, areas of concentration, but it's also pretty broad. Like he's looking at a lot of different things, and um, I, yeah. So I think Sheeler and and showing both sides, I think um, it it starts to open up another axial possibility for the show, which is that 
even within the categories that we think are known, there are also surprises and other hinges out. And then there's the way that when you come all the way around to the end of the show and at the others, uh, the, the last photographs in the show are Greer Langton. And so Greer is someone who's like making things with her hands. She's drawing, she does these incredible notebooks and, and watercolors that depict um, uh, a lot, uh, there's a lot about her surgery and um, there's a lot of writing. Um, and then she makes these sort of amazing um, dolls, figures, mannequins. Um, but she also gets into photography. And um, uh, as, as far as I know, she, David Wanarowicz taught her how to print. And, and David was living in Peter Hujar's old loft um, because Peter died of AIDS. And David used to use Peter's darkroom when Peter was alive, but he took over the loft when Peter died. Um, and I think essentially, you know, helped Greer learn how to print. And um, the, 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 I love Greer Langton's work. I've been a fan since I was, you know, my first saw a show when I was in my 20s. Um, but uh, when I saw the photographs, I kind of like, it sort of bumped her up in my estimation a whole other level because there's this way that she's making the object and then she's photographing and it adds this whole other set of questions about glamour and beauty and representation and representations of the self and the way that a photograph can glamorize um, and the whole sort of there's, um, there are all the uses of photography we talked about before, the kind of utilitarian vernacular popular. And then there's this other kind of extraordinary history in photography, which is about um, the self-portrait and the portrayal of um, uh, the creation of identity through self-portraiture. And I think self-portraiture can be extended to cover um, photographs of oneself, but also photographs of one's circle and one's immediate surroundings. And it's a way of kind of um, creating a social identity, not just a self-contained identity, but like what you want to show of yourself to the world. Um, and so like Cindy Sherman's move, uh, Lorna Simpson's move, and then Greer's, it's, she's kind of working across all of these different um, uh, uh, ways of thinking and making and and something about seeing and these photographs they're really beautiful and sometimes they're spooky and sometimes they're seductive but when you sort of see them along with the icons like Jackie or you know it, there's a whole kind of construction of um, uh, how we construct an appearance in the world um, and the enormous significance. Like you can write it off and say, oh, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter how you look or whatever, but, but this is like a really, um, this runs through our culture at, at a really profound level, so. You brought up the question of class earlier and when in an interview, great interview early on um, in your career with Anna Bloom, you're discussing the Faye Richards archive and she talks about uh, this work as, quote, an intervention against silencing. Wonderful way of describing it. Um, it seems to me that could be said of a great many of 
the works in your practice which address questions, processes of erasure uh, in relation to gender, in relation to race and ethnicity. What doesn't come up so much in the writing, and I think it doesn't come up very much in the writing of American art history, or at all, in the almost at all, in the writing around the work by self-taught artists in the broadest sense, uh -huh. is questions of class. Right. And you obviously think very deeply about it. Can you say something about mm -hmm. both where you see it as, as being um, a galvanizing force in, in mm -hmm. your practice and how you see it more broadly here mm -hmm. in this show? Mm. I just saw Florida Project mm -hmm. last week and um, Tangerine right before that. And I'm not going to go off on all of that, but I just wanted to mark that because I think it's a, um, those two films are th thinking about class in a, in a different way. And it's so refreshing. Um, uh, yeah, I think, you know, um, It, maybe it's it rests as an identity a little bit differently because it you can sometimes pass. It's maybe easier to pass with on class than than on some of the other identities. So it's um, and I also think it's um, like in in some ways politically in this country like one of the hardest things to talk about um, because it what keeps it it keeps all the other ones running. <laughs> um, you know, it's like the economic interests that, that sort of maintain the status quo. Um, I think, I mean, I was a poor kid, um, and uh, but I loved museums and art, and I felt really comfortable around art and literature, and I read books, and I didn't, I didn't really understand that they weren't, like they felt like they were for me even though um, there, there is a kind of a problem, I think, in how a lot of art is presented or registered in this way that it's, um, um, that monetary value um, sometimes gets confused with cultural value or social value or the value of beauty or meaning or experience. And so that kind of confusion or, um, I think is often read that, you know, one hears the contemporary art is elitist or that it only speaks to a certain class or that it's exclusionary. Um, I think there are enormous issues that we could talk about for a really long time about institutional exclusion. Um, I think that are still at play, um, that are not only in the past. Um, you've been using this quote a lot in the last couple of days, the the past is never past, and and where does that come from again, Lynn? From Faulkner, the past is never past. Um, so, I think maybe um, what happens in my practice, um, not necessarily intentionally. Like I don't like wake up in the morning like mm, I want to make some work about class. Like that that doesn't happen. Um, it's just what happens out of my making because it's how I think about the world and how I feel about the world and how the world's inflected for me. 
um, what I notice in the world. And I think there's a, the Fay Richards is a really specific work in that it's really um, what Huey Copeland beautifully called a fabulation. Mm. It's um, imagining into a space that has not been filled yet. So you're imagining what might have been. And the piece attempts to be historically accurate as much as possible. The space that is imagined is actually a possible space. She could have lived. She's a, her story is composed, and many of those images are composed from bits and pieces of many different lives of, of actors, from Dorothy Arzner to Butterfly McQueen um, to Billie Holiday. There's like, so things, these things could have happened. Um, so that was a very specific kind of gesture that I don't know I would have made if, if Cheryl hadn't approached me and asked me to make that work. But in my practice more generally, um, I think it's often about just noticing things that are already there um, and that haven't, that are not um, considered, you know, hadn't been considered, don't, that don't fall into conventional definitions of beauty, but that they've been there all along. It's not like, oh my God, all of a sudden, wow, bubblegum on the street. There's been bubblegum on the street. But it's like noticing that and being like, yeah, what neighborhoods does that happen in? What, what does that mean? Like, what are these signs of life? These pink discs on the sidewalk. Um, and I think, you know, if I could um, sort of parallel into the show some of what this show does, and I think what is so inspiring uh, is it's not, um, it's not a, a, a reconstruction or um, as Josiah was saying last night, we were talking about the word revisionist and the, it's not a revisionism. It's just actually acknowledging what's been there all along. It's been there all along and it's just saying, let's stop showing this over there and this over there that are this 1942, 1942. What does it do when you show them together? Um, so that's something that both conceptually and artistically I identify with and I find deeply inspiring because it, it also reflects, I think, the way that, that, that I work and that many artists work. We're not looking categorically like, I'm only looking at murmur, You're like watching television. <laughs> and that inflects your work as much as, um, you know, well, we could go on and on, but <laughs> it, I think we should stop. Um, it's three o'clock. Thank you so very much. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.